God is creator, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in one God, creator of all things. Now, for our third message on the doctrine of God and the first message this morning, I am encouraged and grateful to have Adonis Vidu with us another first time. Thank you for being with us. And I, I pray that you have been encouraged already, brother. And uh, we look for to more when you uh, come and speak to us. Adonis Vidu is uh, Andrew Much, Distinguished Professor of Theology, Director of the PhD program at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. He sits in the Andrew Much chair and one of our former professors, David Wells. Anyone have David Wells? As a prof yeah, so we've got a few that had David Wells. David was here for about a, a decade and then moved to Gordon-Conwell and, and then retired there. And there have been a couple of uh, uh, individuals that have filled the chair since, but uh, you're filling good shoes uh, with, uh, with David Wells. Uh, Dr. Vidu received his uh, PhD from the University of Nottingham. He came to Gordon-Conwell from his native Romania in 2008, where he previously taught at Emmanuel University and the University of Bucharest. You would also then uh, maybe be helpful to know that, that in, some of us might remember 1989, December 25th, 1989. Maybe we wouldn't. He would never forget that. It was a day that Nicholas Ceausescu was assassinated or killed. Um, uh, killed, actually. Um, where when we talked yesterday about, about life without God, it, it, isn't it an interesting irony that one who would not believe in God, the Christmas day, that happens, and, and, and God reigns. And Brother Adonis and his family lived through that. And we are grateful that, that you remain faithful. Well, he is a constructive theologian who is involved in a recovery of patristic and medieval Trinitarian theology for us, for the contemporary church, with an eye to conceptual clarity and validity. Now, I guess we'll be, uh, test that, whether that's true or not. It is. Adonis' work. <laughs> I'm just with you, man. I'm just with you. His work has been very, very helpful to me. Uh, uh, his work on uh, 2014, The Atonement, Law, and Justice, the Cross in Historical and Cultural Context, which was one of those that really began him moving in this direction to study it more deeply. I found that book to be extremely helpful. Some of his others, more recent, uh, The Same God Who Works All Things, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology and the Divine Missions and Introduction. Now, brothers and sisters, those words are not new to you now. At least you've heard them once before. We will learn today the significance of them. It's not just abstract doctrine. What we just experienced is undergirded by what we're learning. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for the, the privilege we have of being here. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. We have rejoiced. We will continue to rejoice in it. Thank you for uh, uh, Dr. Vidu, uh, Brother Adonis. Thank you for the, the, the gifts you've given to him. Thank you for uh, the privilege you've given to him to study these things and to help us, the people of God, to think more clearly and faithfully about them. We pray a blessing on him now as he comes to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you so much, Greg, and um, it's great to be here. It's a wonderful experience, I have to say. Yesterday was amazing. I get to hear some of my favorite theology professors and writers, and it's, it's amazing. And then hearing you all sing today and yesterday. And not only that, but knowing that you are here to study God, without any further question as to how does this help my ministry. You don't need another justification to study and, and enjoy God. It is its own justification. God is an end in, its, in itself. And uh, so it's amazing to be here. Thank you, Greg, for the presentation. And as you mentioned some of those things, um, I just want to make a couple of comments uh, on those. Yes, December 25, 1989, yeah, we were out caroling that, that night uh, and that when we heard the news that uh, our former president was executed. So, yes, we shot the sheriff in uh, 1989. <laughs> but but we, didn't sh we didn't shoot the deputy, so... so so we had just have some continuity there as well. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to say is that when you mentioned that uh, something like constructive theologian, that's from my, my, my description on the website, constructive theologian with an eye to conceptual clarity or something, just reminded me, I need to change that. Just because you're just, yeah, you're just, uh, you know, inviting certain ty types of questions. And uh, let's not focus on conceptual clarity this morning. Uh, it's too early in the morning for that, but um, all right, so here's the topic of my, the title of my presentation, One God, Creator of Heaven and Earth, uh, and, and if you notice, there's a subtitle there, uh, the, the Triune God and Mar the Triune Creator and Marriage, so I'm, I'm inflecting the topic a little bit for our, um, for our um, conference today, uh, and I'm still talking about God and creation, but I'm going to be focusing on one specific aspect of creation, which is marriage, and I think it's very... Um, it was very. It was providential that the pre-conference session was also on, on, on sexuality or sexuality and marriage. So I think it's going to dovetail with that um, nicely. Uh, I hope so. Um, this is part of a of a current research that I'm engaged in, which is looking at Christian life from the perspective of one key metaphor, and that is the metaphor of spiritual marriage to Christ. I want to think about Christian life as being married to Christ. And, and the fact that we are adopted into the Trinity, or we are adopted into the family of God, so to speak, but our adoption takes place specifically through marriage to Christ. We enter into the family of God precisely because we are the bride of the Son of God. Uh, and that gives a particular inflection of the metaphor of adoption and, and, and the language and the conceptuality of adoption. Um, Here's from the, from the Nicene Creed, the confession that we all know very well. We confess that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And both the apostles, as well as the Nicene Creed, contain this phrase, the Father Almighty. Uh, the, the statement of faith of the uh, EFCA uh, omits this language, but it surely accepts them. Um, the paradox, I think, in that statement um, may not be immediately clear. And I want to unpack that paradox for us a little bit. Now, fatherhood, the fatherhood of God indicates connaturality, indicates something close, closeness, intimacy, shared blood, intimate closeness. 
Now, on the other hand, to be creator, and not just an artificer, not just a designer or an arranger of pre-existing materials, not just one who forms matter, but one who creates matter in the first place from nothing. Well, that indicates utter difference. So fatherhood indicates intimacy, being creator indicates utter difference. The only true difference, one might say, between creator and creature. For every other difference is a difference within something that is common, a difference among beings. To say that God is creator is to confess his aseity, to confess his holy, other, his holy otherness, his being mysterium tremendum. Such is, implied, such is the implied paradox, I think, in, the prop, in this proposition of the creed. Now, this paradox must not be too quickly resolved, I think. Um, it needs to be allowed to demonstrate its own opposing forces. Its centrifugal forces must not be prematurely harnessed. The truth of the fatherhood of God, of the familial intimacy promised in that name, must not blur out the truth of his otherness. Emanationist theories of creation are in this way because they simply derive creation all too directly from the being of God. Neither must God's ontological strangeness detract from his paternal closeness to creation. Here, as everywhere, one must find a balance where the two are equally affirmed, even as they redefine each other. There is another kind of tension, however, for the creed attributes creation to the one God, but then appears to single out the Father as the person responsible for creation. Are we to think that the Father is truly the one creator, that his Son not share in the creating act? Does the Son's part come later, once creation is already completed? And here we have the temptation to distinguish between the Creator Father and the Redeemer Son. And this temptation goes back to early, early Gnostic distortions, a demeaning of creation in favor of redemption. Scripture decisively puts that thought to rest by ascribing creation specifically to Jesus Christ. John 1.3, John 1.10, Romans 11.36, 1 Corinthians 8.6, we looked at that text yesterday, Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1.2. Now, the effect of this statement of placing or attributing creation to Christ, the effect of the statement is double. On the one hand, it's not just the Father that creates, but the Son as well. Moreover, it is the Son precisely in His redemptive capacity, precisely in His redemptive work as the incarnate Lord, Jesus Christ, who is Creator. Therefore, the humanity of the Lord is central to the very act of creation. So creation, in other words, is not just operated or created by the transcendent God, the transcendent tri tri triunity, but it is operated by God also in this dimension of his humanity, which, of course, takes place in Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, such ideas are naturally de destabilizing of any purely philosophical theism. 
how could a human being born in time, how could that, such a human being be the creator and lord of time? How can the one through whom everything was made be one which himself comes from another? So confident and categorical is the New Testament apostolic ascription to Christ of the very act of primordial creation that it shook monotheism to its very foundations. I think this is probably the most significant argument for Jesus' divinity in the New Testament, namely that he, to him is ascribed the primordial and unique act of creation. Nothing that was made was made without him. Everything is made by him and for him as well. But only God is the one who creates. There's only one possible source of everything else which exists, and that is exactly who Christ is identified as. Um, so um, the tectonic movement of the plates of the law and the prophets led to the formation of the Trinitarian mountain. The Trinitarian dogma sprung up precisely in order to safeguard Jewish monotheism, not to destroy it. Unless Jesus is really God, and not just another God, but the self-same God, one with the Heavenly Father from eternity, then the Father himself could not have been creator, as long as creation is ascribed to Jesus. It is only because they are one that both the Father as well as the Son can be creator. The dawn of the Trinitarian age all of a sudden clarifies the paradox or illuminates the paradox, the tension at the very heart of the doctrine of creation. Certain correspondences, similitudes, echoes, appear to open up between the act of creation and the agent of creation. Yes, creation is the positing of absolute difference, of an absolute difference between a holy other God and his handiwork. However, corresponding to this difference, and to this creative act, there is also in God another difference. So on the one hand, the difference between God and creation, but that difference is itself prepared by another difference that already exists in God. Between one who is without origin, the Father, and one who is begotten, the Son. A different difference, to be sure, but nevertheless a real distinction. And so the very act of creation now appears to be grounded, even if it doesn't necessarily or sp uh, spring forth or doesn't come out necessarily, but it's grounded in this, what I'm calling an inner Trinitarian fruitfulness. An inner Trinitarian fruitfulness. From a positing of a second and third within the unity of the same substance. So not only do we have the springing forth of creation, the free springing forth of creation from God, but that springing forth of creation is already in some sense uh, perhaps prepared by another springing forth, but a springing forth within the very being of God. And this is the procession of the Son and the procession of the Holy Spirit. So there's a connection between these two fruitfulnesses that I'm going to elaborate in this presentation. Now, creation does not, I'm sorry, that's a little bit premature. No, creation does not necessarily result from a Trinitarian God. I'm trying to, I'm not, I don't want to say that. Yet one might say that, should creation be willed by God, and it was, it will echo in some sense this precise Trinitarian pattern that exists within God himself. 
This is exactly what Thomas Aquinas meant by this phrase, the personal processions are the pattern for the production of creatures. So we expect to find some resemblance between creation, the act of creation, the kinds of things that are created, and God in himself. What I propose to explore in this session is the particular working out of this Trinitarian patterning in one created institution, which is that of marriage and the family. Why marriage and the family? Well, because despite the re recent misapplications of the social image to the Trinity, the family remains a qualitatively superior image for the Trinity. And yet, not simply for the Trinity, as we'll see, as much as for the Trinity's transfiguration of the world. In the following, then, I will organize my talk in the following, in the following uh, sections. First, I will show how and why it is appropriate to speak of the Trinity as fruitfulness. Second, I will briefly unpack the essence of human marriage as a relationship of union that is open to fruitfulness. So I would define marriage in precisely in terms of fruitfulness. Thirdly, I would like to show that the human family is not to be directly compared to the triune family, but only through a tertium comparationis, which is another term of comparison, which is the marriage between Christ and the church. So, so the, the, the comparison of the human family and the divine family, if I, if I can call it that, is going to come into focus specifically in the marriage between Christ and the church. This is where all this comparison is leading, and in fact, uh, this marriage between Christ and the church will show itself to be the very meaning of creation, the very meaning of marriage. In conclusion, I will argue that marriage is special because it is one privileged vector for the transformation of humans into the image of the Trinity. What will hopefully emerge is this vision of the triune God who not only creates, God doesn't just create something outside of himself, like for the heck of it, for example. But rather, out of his own overflow of being, he posits into being a creation precisely in order to give it to his son in marriage. So that's the connection between Trinity and creation. The Trinity is this divine fruitfulness, bringing something into being outside of itself and then pulling it back to himself in the marriage between Christ and the church. Now let me, say, let me talk first about this Trinitarian fruitfulness. To confess the Trinity is to affirm in God an eternal movement. Augustine uses this notion. There's in God a movere, a movement, a dynamism, a pulsating life, knowledge and love. Piero Coda, an Italian um, theologian, calls this an effusive, effusive unity. The very reason the church has affirmed the co-equality of Father, Son, and Spirit is because it noted within the operations of God a threefold structure. Within the very same operations, there's a certain pattern that becomes detectable. Every action of God was understood to originate with the Father, to be acted on by the Son, and to be perfected by the Holy Spirit. The Son can do only what He sees the Father doing, John 5, 19. The Spirit only speaks what He hears, John 16, 13, and so on. So you see there's a pattern. Even though 
the actions of God in the world are inseparable, there's nevertheless a pattern within those very actions themselves. So they are not without distinction, even though they are inseparable. Um, and yet each act is the common essential act of the triune persons. Now, I have appealed in the past to the analogy of the magnet to clarify this. And here you have a natural magnet that has two poles, the north and the south. And the interesting thing here is that the poles are not parts of the magnet. Because if they were parts, you could sever one pole off and you would still have, say, you cut the north pole and you still have the north pole in your right hand, the south pole in your left hand. You don't have that. They are inseparably connected to each other, and in fact, they mutually define what they are. They mutually define and constitute each other. In fact, the poles are functions of the dynamism of the magnetic field. Now, there's real distinction between the poles, but they're not parts of God. So I think this can be a helpful, one of those you know, metaphors and, and analogies that we can use. Of course, it's not perfect because it's only two, not three. So some have suggested all kinds of ways of, of, uh, of improving this analogy. Sure, have a field day with it, whatever. Yeah? There's no perfect analogy for the Trinity. But it can help us at least uh, get our minds around this idea that you can have a real distinction without separation. So, something else also. When the magnet attracts an object, it is precisely this field which tugs at the object. It's the whole magnet that pulls the object towards itself. The, say a, me, a needle, for example, a metallic needle is drawn to this imminent magnet, dynamism of the magnet. Although the magnetic field emanates from the magnet itself, its efficiency overflows the physical boundaries of the magnet, hence its attractive power. Now the Eastern Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox theology likes to, likes to think of the operations of God more in terms of the energies of God. The energies of God. It's kind of like the light emanating from the sun, right? Or the heat emanating from the sun. It's not contained within the sun. It belongs to the sun and, and uh, properly to the sun, but it has a natural effusiveness to it, which is what, what, what Piero Coda uh, means by that effusive unity. Uh, and the other thing that I wanted to, to point here in, in connection to this analogy is that here you have a kind of fruitfulness in the magnet itself. Because not only do you have two poles, but you have these two poles in some sense integrally connected to one another. The, the magnetic energy or field is always flowing from the north to the south. So always from one to the other. You might say in the same way as in the Trinity, it's always from the Father to the Son. Right? In a magnet, it's always... So you have a dynamism in, in the magnet itself uh, that then uh, flows into whatever it is that is, it is attached to the magnet. So it's interesting, if you bring a needle to the magnet, the needle itself becomes magnetized. So I like to think about the human nature of Jesus Christ as being pulled by the whole Trinity. Steve did a great job yesterday talking about the whole Trinity uh, producing the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of the Son, but only the Son receives the human nature in, in union. And in a similar way here in a magnet, the whole magnet attracts a, a metallic needle, but only one of the poles receives the needle uh, and, and is attached to only one of the poles. And the interesting thing that follows is that the needle itself becomes magnetized, and then you can pull and bring other needles and attach other needles to the magnet. Anyway, I think the, the, the metaphor has application in Christology as well. Now, here's someone that also like, uh, to toyed around a little bit with this, with this analogy, and that's only the Lubac. A French Catholic 
theologian, he cashes out this analogy and he says, for man, God is not only a norm that is imposed upon him and by guiding him, lifts him up again. God is the absolute upon which he rests, the magnet that draws him, the beyond that calls him, the eternal that provides him with the only atmosphere in which he can breathe, and in some sort, that third dimension in which man finds his depth. I loved um, Gavin's presentation yesterday, talking about this, this inner desire for God that every human being has. John Paul II called it a nostalgia for God. Every human being wants God and desires God, even they may explicitly reject that they do so. But the very fiber of their being points them in that direction. Now, the Trinitarian life into which we are drawn can be characterized itself as fruitfulness. The Father begets the Son. He confers his own divinity to him, although he may not be Father without him or indeed God without him. In the Augustinian line of thought, the Son is the self-knowledge of the Father. Or one might say that the Son is the fruit of the Father's self-knowledge or self-understanding. He is the image that is born or generated in, I should say born, in that very act of knowledge. The Son returns the love with which the Father has begotten him to the Father, and thus their shared attentiveness to one another the bond which unites them is the Holy Spirit. Now, some social Trinitarians are too quick to think of the Trinity as a family. In our recent social imaginary, we are familiar with perichoretic metaphors. The divine dance, for example. I don't know how many here have heard about the divine dance, Richard Rohr, and so on. In the history of Christian theology, the familial analogy has been deployed most famously by Gregory of Nazianz. And here's how he articulated it. The father and Adam are both unengendered, unengendered. The son and Seth are both, both engendered, the, and the spirit and Eve are both coming forth in a different way than by generation. Richard of St. Victor is perhaps the other equally notorious case where the Holy Spirit represents the third person, the condilectus, without whom the love between father and the son may become selfish and self-absorbed in that binary dynamism. Now, even John Paul II appears to have come down in favor of the social metaphor. He says, in the light of the New Testament, it is possible to glimpse the original model of the family, which must be sought in God himself in the Trinitarian mystery of his life. Now, I think there are significant limitations to this analogy. First, Gregory's analogy only seems to work for the relations themselves and not for the persons. It is true that in the first family, we find one relation of unengenderedness. Adam was not born. Right? Adam was not engendered. But that is because he was made. Of course, we can't say it about the father. Right? The father was not born, but he was not made either. And we also find um, one relation of begottenness. Um, Seth was indeed born. And we also find another relation whereby Eve proceeds through an act other than begetting. Right? Eve was fashioned from 
Adam's rib, and so on. However, as soon as one tests the analogy in terms of the persons involved, it leads to some problematic consequences. The son, represented by Seth, must be begotten from both the father as well as the spirit, thus being the son of the spirit. This reverses the typical order encountered in scripture, where the son is the, where the, son is the one who sends the spirit, not the other way around. Right? Even though we do learn about the conception of Jesus or by Mary from the Holy Spirit. So that's a whole other discussion. Hopefully none of you will raise the clarity of my presentation or challenge it in, 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 from, that, from that angle. So just trying to preempt, some, preempt something here. Now the casting of the woman, of Eve, in the position of the Spirit is not inherently problematic, but it requires too much of a creative license. Alternatively, Adam's unengenderedness should not obscure the fact that he was made. So unlike the father, Adam is not without origin. Now there are other critiques of the family analogy from predictable sources. Augustine argues that the familial analogy cannot realize a true unity, a substantial unity within a human family. So even though um, husband and wife, for example, for, for, uh, form a unity, there's, they still remain two distinct beings. Whereas in the Trinity, you don't want to say that you have three beings, but only one being. Moreover, if we take the family to be the image of God by being the image of the Trinity, how could each individual human being be in the image of God? If it's only the family that's the image of God, how can each individual human being who may not be in the family be in the image of God? It would seem that, individually speaking, a man could be the image of the father, a woman the image of the spirit, and a child the image of the son. Delivering the final blow, Augustine reminds us that there are no children referenced in connection with the image in the male and the female, Genesis 1.27. I'll come back to that, uh, to that text. In lockstep with Augustine, Aquinas argues that because the man and the woman already possess the image individually, this is not a good analogy. The image fully belongs to both sexes, Aquinas argues. Um, since it is in the mind, where, wherein there is no sexual differentiation. Now, these are some critiques of the family analogy, but I would not want to dismiss the familial image too quickly. It is obvious that the Trinity is very much unlike a marriage or unlike a family, if by the family we understand a mother, a father, mother, and offspring. Augustine is right that there is no substantial unity that obtains within a family in the same way that it obtains within the Trinity. However, as we shall see, there is within marriage and the family a form of unity that surpasses any other kind of collaborative unity, a form of organic unity. And I will argue that this unity best anticipates and prefigures the unity between Christ and the church. But that's a little bit anticipating what happens. Now, nevertheless, there remains in the Trinity something analogous to marriage, although something also very disanalogous and thus needing some, some other point of comparison. Now, no, no, friend of, uh, no friend of forms of social trinity, uh, maybe I should make a clarification. Uh, social trinitarianism is, a, um, let's, we, we normally distinguish between a social trinitarianism and a classical trinitarianism. 
Social Trinitarianism tends to treat the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three beings that, that come together to form an unbreakable unity. But fundamentally, they remain three distinct beings existing in their own right, even though they come together and form a unity, kind of like a husband and a wife are two distinct beings and, they, and then form one, uh, one flesh. Um, classical Trinitarianism insists that God is one being and insists on that unity, and then within that unity finds the self-differentiation and distinction between the persons. Now, Barth is not a friend of social Trinitarianism at all. And nevertheless, nevertheless, he grounds the, the male-female encounter in the marriage, uh, he grounds the male-female encounter in the Trinity, appealing to Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Bart insists on the centrality of the last part of 127 for the meaning of the early part of 127. And he says this, In God's own being and sphere, there is a counterpart, a genuine but harmonious self-encounter and self-discovery, a free coexistence and cooperation, an open confrontation and reciprocity, this is in God. Man is the repetition of this divine form of life, its copy and its reflection. So you see how Bart is grounding this sort of encounter between male and female, between the human I and thou, in the encounter between the Trinitarian persons. Now, he does not abandon this train of thought in future volumes of the Church Dogmatics. Later on, in the second part of the third volume, he says that as the Father and the Son, as the Father of the Son, and the Son of the Father is himself an I and thou, confronting himself, yet always one and the same in the Holy Ghost, so is the human family. Moving on, because he is not solitary in himself, and therefore does not will to be so ad extra, it is not good for man to be alone. And God created him in his own image as male and female. So this innate natural desire for company, for social relation that every human being has as part of their very nature, this is a reflection of the divine encounter, of the encounter between Father and Son and Holy Spirit in the Trinity itself. This is where Bart finds a connection. Now, Hans Urs von Balthasar, another modern, modern uh, uh, Roman Catholic theologian, very helpfully shows that what remains of use in this analogy is the intrinsic fruitfulness of marriage. Von Balthasar is also critical of the family analogy, but he thinks that there's still something about marriage that makes it, makes it a fitting image for the Trinity, and that's the idea of the fruitfulness of marriage. He writes about the family analogy, and he says that it remains, in spite of all obvious dissimilarities, the most eloquent imago trinitatis that we find woven into the fabric of the creature. It not only transcends Augustine's self-contained I, but also allows the condelectus, the co-beloved, that Richard's model imports from the outside to spring from the intimacy of love itself, precisely as its fruitfulness. Let me go back to this image. In God, there's the Father who is unbegotten, and the Father begets the Son, right? 
So the Son is the self-knowledge of the Father, the image that springs, the image that is formed in the self-knowledge of the Father. But then this image, right, the Son returns everything to the Father. Everything he receives from the Father, he returns to the Father in love. And it's that bond between the Father and the Son, that is, that is the Holy Spirit, which is the fruit of their common love, so to speak. So you see how both Barth was critical of the social analogy, as well as von Balthasar, who was also somewhat critical of the social analogy, are still able to speak about the Trinity in terms of fruitfulness, in terms of this dynamic life that exists within itself in terms of knowledge and love. <clears throat> now, let me go back to the second point here. So the first thing I, I try to, to elaborate is, is, is whether we can think about the Trinity in terms of fruitfulness, and I think we can. Now let's say, let's see how is this connected to marriage. Right? How is this connected to marriage? What has this fruitfulness to do with marriage? Now to the modern person, marriage is simply a contractual relation between two, perhaps more, who knows, persons, grounded in mutual affection. However, there is nothing intrinsic to marriage, so the modern, uh, ma modern man thinks. There's nothing intrinsic to marriage that transcends the relation itself or what the partners have in common. Simply a contract where we, we both bring what we are. There's no openness to something else intrinsically in the very idea of marriage. Now, while children are often regarded as a good of marriage, they are not regarded as belonging to the very essence of marriage. How could infertile couples be truly married if children are of the essence of marriage, right? So there's a good argument here as what not to include children in, in the very definition of marriage. And thus the marriage relation becomes entirely naturalized as a purely contractual bond between human, indi between human individuals. Now in modern theology as well, um, this view of marriage uh, as merely a, an effective relation and, and a contractual union often prevails. Um, some people have called it a personalist view of marriage as opposed to a procreative view of marriage. And this um, personalist view of marriage appears to have overtaken the traditional view, which I'm going to call procreative. Karl Barth, for example, uh, who finds the definitive imago dei in the male-female male encounter, tends to stress the binary I-thou of the marriage relation as its most fundamental tenet. He writes, in the relationship between man and woman, even prior to its character as the basis of the father-mother-child relationship, we have to do primarily with the question of the incomparable covenant of an irresistibly purposed and effected union. So even Barth thinks about marriage primarily in terms of a covenant between male and the female, not in terms of openness to, to procreation, not in, not in terms of fruitfulness. This is where von Balthasar corrects Barth's view of marriage. Scripture treats marriage very differently. It treats it as a sui generis relation, as a special institution with a special meaning in the redemptive purposes of God. At the very culmination of the act of creation, God makes man a partner, a helpmeet, and joins them together for, for the populate, populating of the earth. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now the Catholic tradition 
uh, and not only the Catholic tradition, but the Orthodox tradition as well, understands, not everybody in the Orthodox tradition to, to, to be sure, but, but on the whole, understands the essence of marriage in terms of an openness to fruit, to openness to children. Aquinas identifies two ends of marriage. Its principal end is the good of children, not only in terms of their procreation, but also in terms of their upbringing, which includes their instruction in the faith. Aquinas thus understands marriage to be a specific kind of union, a very specific kind of union, the type of union that has an openness to the bearing of children. Now, it must be clarified from the very beginning that only the potentiality for procreation is required uh, for marriage, not actual procreation. So Aquinas is not saying the couples that don't have children do not have a real marriage because there's no procreation. But, but what he's saying is that marriage is only that kind of relation which can naturally result through its union into procreation. And automatically that restricts it obviously to heterosexual marriage, right? Because it is the only form of relation that is in principle open to, the proc to, to procreation. Now this logic Right? This logic of thinking marriage in terms of procreation strikes us as quaint, perhaps, and many struggle to understand why marriage ought to be defined in terms of its telos, procreation. I found a lot of help in, um, in this book by Robert P. George, Sheriff Gerges, and Ryan T. Anderson, simply titled, What is Marriage? It's a very brief book. Uh, I really encourage you to, um, to read it. And they do a fantastic job of explaining just this procreative logic. They define marriage as a comprehensive union between two persons. As comprehensive, it includes all aspects of their personhood, including body and soul. But they ask what makes a real union, they, sorry, they argue that what makes a real union between two persons is common action, an action oriented toward common ends. Organic unity, on the other hand, is even stronger. So family is an organic unity between two persons. And they're articulating it this way. He says, um, your organs are one body because they are coordinated for a single biological purpose of the whole that they form together. Sustaining your biological life. Just so, for two individuals to unite organically, their bodies must coordinate toward a common biological end of the whole that they form together. That's what accounts for the unity. That's why this is a comprehensive organic unity because their bodies coordinate towards a common end. They don't just unite for the pleasure of it, but they coordinate for a common end resulting in offspring. When they do so, they do not just touch or interlock. Their union is not just felt or metaphorical. Though more limited, it is as real as the union of a single body's parts. Now, other than sexual re reproduction, there are no bodily functions that can provide that unity between two people. For any bodily function, the single individual is sufficient. They argue in coitus, and there alone, a man and a woman's bodies participate by virtue of their sexual complementarity in a coordination that has the biological purpose of reproduction, a function that neither can perform alone. 
By engaging in it, they are united and do not merely touch, much as one's heart, lungs, and other organs are united by coordinating toward a biological good of the whole that they form together. Here the whole is the couple, the single biological good, their reproduction. So here then we have this image of marriage understood primarily as a unique kind of relation, and the only kind of relation that is open towards, uh, towards proc uh, procreation. Um, and according to Balthazar, at least, here we have in this image of fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of marriage, the most germane point of analogy to the Trinity. Right? It's not so much the fact that there are children, but the fact that it's fruitful. It's, it's, it's a relationship that it's inherently self-transcending into something else. It leads to something else. Like the Trinity, marriage and the family... Um, is a qualitatively different kind of relation, designating, a, designating a, an organic unity characterized by fruitfulness. In marriage, human beings image God in the sense of coming together in the closest possible union, for human beings, that is, and having a share with God in the bringing forth of creatures. There is a second kind of fruitfulness of marriage, also captured by Aquinas' theology of marriage, that is, a second good of marriage is mutual service to each other. Spouses do not only help each other to procreate through their complementarity, but they also catalyze each other's sanctification through the curbing of desire and the mortification of selves. So some, someone has described marriage as um, fruitful self-giving. Not just fruitfulness, but fruit, fruitful self-giving. It, it, it is because you give yourself wholly to the other and sacrificially to the other uh, that you form one body. So the, there's a connection there, there between self-emptying, self-sacrifice, giving, emptying yourself into the other, uh, and, and this idea of fruitfulness as well. So marriage, then, is, not, is the only kind of bond between human beings that is inherently open to the coming forth of more life. And it is integrally related to the reciprocal asymmetry between, of the two sexes, which is another term taken over from Angelo Scola. God actively creates new souls precisely through this bond he has established in the beginning. There is thus a similitude between the self-transcendence of the human beings in marriage and the fruitful relationality of the triune being. Right, so I've done first first two points, right? The fruitfulness of the Trinity, marriage as fruitfulness. Now let's move on to the idea of Christ and his church. Now, for all the helpfulness, <clears throat> for all the helpfulness of the category of fruitfulness, the analogy seems somewhat un uh, somewhat unsatisfactory. Sure, God is a fruitful being, a fruitful single being. We in marriage participate in some abstract sense by similitude in this productivity, but as much as the nuptial image is bodily and organic on the human side, it is entirely spiritual on the divine side. On the, on, the, on the other hand, if we're looking for instances of purely spiritual union, we find them all around us. Right? Why do we need this organic image, image of, of marriage? Uh, we find it in the unity of friendship, for example. 
which is a pure, it can be a purely spiritual form of union. It's not organic. Uh, we find in all forms of unions around a single purpose and so on. So marriage and family seems to be too organic, a little bit too organic of a metaphor um, or analogy for the divine triunity. It's a little bit too much. It's saying a little bit too much. Scripture, moreover, never presents human marriage as a simple repetition of a heavenly marriage or a family. While there is indeed a heavenly father and an eternal son, there is no heavenly family, there is no heavenly mother. There are no spouses, no heavenly spouses. There is never a, a direct comparison and similitude between human marriage and the divine community. Rather, there is always a tertium comparationis given by the marriage between God and Israel. So I'm trying to say this is where this cashes out. Not in a direct comparison between the human family and the divine family, but in the fact that God wants to form a family with us, that God is drawing us into marriage to his son. And that's kind of the crunch here. Now, what, uh, So in the analogy between the human and the divine marriage, embodiment is involved only on the human side of the comparison. It is only because of the introduction by Christ of the idea of marriage between God and humanity that the scriptures can invoke this kind of an association between God and love, and eros, actually. Here's Bart. It is because Jesus Christ and his church are the internal basis of creation. In other words, because God creates with a view to redemption, with a view to Christ already, to the covenant, and because Jesus Christ is again the basis of the election and call of Israel, that the relation between Yahweh and Israel can and must be described as an erotic relationship. And Bart explains here, this is why we have the Song of Songs in, in, the, in the canon. right? Because this relationship of love between God and Israel is a bodily relation. So in other words, if we didn't have the incarnation... The whole comparison between human marriage and divine marriage would have been pointless. It's because we have God as a body, in a body, Mary giving himself in marriage, betrothing himself to Israel, bringing the church as his bride into his family. That is why this, these organic metaphors are there. Because creation is already ordered to the covenant, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, for example, God has made us for this person, for this purpose, to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because it has, it's already ordered to the covenant as its internal basis, the marriage and the family is not simply a representation of the divine family, so to speak, but rather an anticipation of the divine human family created at the cross in the human body of Jesus Christ. So rather than giving us a clear vestige of the Trinity, Scripture takes marriage between a man and a woman to be a sacrament or a mystery of the relationship between Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.21 and forward. Of course, there could only be such a marriage between God and humanity if in the Trinity itself there existed this self-differentiation and in unity, this dynamism of overflowing love. And if creation is from the very beginning, was meant from the very beginning to be drawn into the Trinitarian communion, apart from this Trinitarian faith, such a union with God, would be either a total mysticism where the human being is lost in God and the creature-creator distinction must be overcome 
which denies embodiment altogether, or it would be a form of Mormonism or polytheism, which retains the body but loses the divinity. Uh, loses the divinity because it works with incoherent notions of divinity as something which can be gained or lost. The Trinity shows that God is hospitable to the guests at the banquet, that there is space in God for true difference. The marriage between Christ and the church is itself a fruitful union. I want to speak about the fruit of this marriage, the fruitfulness of the marriage between Christ and the church. From this union flow to the body from the head, right? The body grows from the head. Colossians 2.19, Ephesians 2.21, and so on. From this union flow to the body the spiritual gifts. The body is transfigured. We are transfigured as the bride of Christ. We are sanctified by the union itself with Christ, who unites us with himself, the head. Just as human marriage is self-transcending, the spiritual marriage to Christ, between Christ and the church, produces the transfiguration and spiritualization of the church. It is fundamentally through marriage to Christ that we receive from him the gift of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, which is also the spirit of adoption, Romans 8.15, and so on. We thus enter into the family of the Son specifically through marriage to him, through Christ. And this is the inflection of, of the metaphor of adoption that I was talking about. So we're now in a position where we can see sort of See the full circle, how we have moved in, in this argument. The Trinity creates the world in a free act of positing a wholly other reality. But this reality was created fundamentally in order to be pulled into the Trinity. The vectors along which it is pulled, the magnetic field, if you, if you will, to, to use that analogy, um, are the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The visible mission of the Son consists in his hypostatic union with humanity. The invisible mission of the Son is his indwelling every human, every individual believer, and thus his marriage to the church. So I'm thinking about the invisible mission of the Son as his marriage to the church. You are already married to Christ in virtue of being united with him. The invisible mission of the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is precisely the fruit of your marriage to Christ. Right? So the Spirit is the fruit which you bear, not through your own power, but in virtue of the seed of the Word that you have in you through union with Jesus Christ. Von Balthasar, again, writes that the Spirit the Spirit arrives completely in the latter, that is, in, in us. Not as something extraneous to us, but as something that is in the possession of the giver, handed over together with the possibility of being taken over as a gift into the possession of the one who receives it, and of being acknowledged and possessed as his own. So there's a fruition of the Holy Spirit in you and I precisely because of our union with Christ. Yesterday we, talked, we mentioned filioque a little bit and Stephen has made this connection between the Spirit as being specifically the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son and the Spirit of Christ and that is exactly what's going on here. <clears throat> um, again, von Balthasar, who says that only the Trinity prevents 
this from becoming a radical mysticism. He says, it is only within the New Testament, New Testament's Trinitarian revelation, that it's possible to conceive of such a process as not leading to the identification of the giver and the one who receives the gift, as in the mysticisms that lack a Trinitarian structure and therefore seek only to overcome the dualism of creator-creature. Indeed, the New Testament presents the Spirit as being specifically inflected through the humanity it is channeled through. It's inflected by the humanity of Jesus Christ. The Pentecostal Spirit is precisely the Spirit of Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 9, if you're looking for um, more discussion, biblical discussion, Galatians 4, 6, Philippians 1, 19. Significantly, Jesus himself portrays the one who believes in Christ as a spring of the Holy Spirit. From you will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking about the Spirit. In other words, not into you will flow rivers of living water. So you see, the Spirit is not an extrinsic thing we receive, but, some, but, but something that comes through the union with Jesus Christ and thus as the fruit of that union involving our own humanity um, as well. Think about the way in which the, whole, the, the scriptures were inspired. The Spirit worked through the very humanity of the biblical authors, and thus it was a natural union that led to, to, to what we have as the scriptures. So by way of conclusion, marriage and the transfiguration of creation. In marriage, because it is the self-transcending institution, and because there is this fruitful self-giving in marriage, it is one of those forms by which and in which we come to mirror the Trinity in that we begin to form life and chastity in our bodies. In marriage, we do not so much imitate a divine family as we anticipate our inclusion in it and the consequent transfiguration of, of, of ourselves. This fruitfulness is a fruition precisely of the Holy Spirit, just as it is a fruition of Christ. In this then consists the resemblance of the Trinity in Christ's marriage to the church. To the Son's begottenness of the Father corresponds the Son's insemination into our hearts, sometimes through the mediating office of the virgins and friends of the bridegroom. This is where Paul is talking about his own pains of childbirth that he has until Christ is born, is formed in you. To the Spirit's procession from the Father and the Son corresponds the fruit that comes out of the seed of the Word, which is the Spirit itself. A couple of applications. First, the, ar the archetype or the archetype of human marriage is not simply the imminent trinity, but the spiritual marriage between Christ and His church. It is wrong to look at the trinity for models of subordination and superordination. This is the old 2016 conversation about the eternal functional subordination of the Son. Human marriage anticipates the nuptial mission of the Son, his leaving the Heavenly Father, leaving, right, the Heavenly Father, to become uh, one with his bride, the church. One may not appeal to the familial, subordin familial subordination of woman to man, the head of woman is man, 1 Corinthians 11.3, um, as a model for an imminent subordination of the Son to the Father. So I'm trying to sever making those connections, right? I think it just doesn't work. It doesn't work to directly compare the imminent trinity to family relations, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that relations of subordination and whatnot need to be decided on some other basis. 
Second, the second application. If human marriage is a sacramental anticipation and representation of the marriage between Christ and the church, then the only legitimate transgression of this institution created by God, the only legitimate trans, uh, transgression is virginity itself. In other words, if marriage points to Christ and, and the wedding between Christ and the church, and the only way to, to have some other kind of marriage is precisely by finding the fulfillment of this marriage, and that is the union with Christ. That is, the, that is why in heaven we will not be giving each, uh, ourselves in marriage because we will be perfectly united with Christ. If the true meaning of, of human marriage is our spiritual marriage to Christ, it is illegitimate to appeal to an eschatological dissolution of human marriage, such as we find in Jesus' statements in Mark 12, Matthew 22, as a basis for the undermining of heterosexuality in the here and now. The most recent place I've seen that doing is, uh, uh, is um, in the work of, um, of Douglas Campbell, Pauline Dogmatics, a recent book from Erdman's uh, Teaches New Testament theo Theology at uh, Duke University. And he argues that because in heaven we will not be given each other in marriage, that already leads to a deconstruction of, of, of marriage in the present. Now, it's true that in the spiritual marriage there is a certain unsettling of gender distinctives. Because we're all female in relation to Christ, the groom. right? But the bodily arrangement is transcended in the, directions of the in the direction of the body's spiritualization, not in the direction of the body's deconstruction. That would be Gnosticism. In other words, it is when all of our desires have been fulfilled in the consummation of the heavenly marriage to Christ that the natural mortal sense of our bodies has been overcome. The eschatological meaning of marriage does not undermine its current mortal sense, which is tied to the procreation of children. It does not rearrange its imminent structure, male and female, united for the procreation of offspring. While this creational institution gestures towards the eschaton, the mortal, that which is temporary, must first pass. It has not passed yet. For first comes the natural, and then the spiritual, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So unless the resurrection has already happened, as Gnostic sects, sects had argued, see 2 Timothy 2.18, we do not have a license to revise the law of our bodies and sexuality, and therefore must pay heed to the words of Christ that we turn back to the, to the beginning and to creation and gain our bearings from creation. Thank you very much. That's all I had to say.